1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a Rewind episode of Earn and Invest. Today, we're going to talk about whether anyone can reach financial independence, regardless of your background. We dropped this episode about two years ago, and it is with some of my favorite creators, I'll let you listen to figure out who they are, but I believe that this conversation is as relevant today as it was a few years ago. Remember, this was recorded pre-COVID, so there are some differences there, but sit back, relax, listen. Also, the branding of the podcast at that time was What's Up Next and not Earn and Invest, so don't be confused. You are listening to the right podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Take a listen.
2: Hi, this is Christy.
1: And this is Bryce.
3: This is Jillian Johnsrude.
4: This is Carl. This is Paula. And And you you are are listening listening to the What's Up Next podcast. podcast. Wait, is that what I was supposed to say?
5: You nailed it. Okay.
4: (laughs)
1: So, Paul Thompson, what's up next?
5: Hey, Doc. We have a series of several alumni on the show today, and we're going to ask them the very basic but profound question is, can anyone become financially independent? So I'm going to go around the horn here and have each of them do a quick introduction before we dig into the conversation. So Jillian, do you mind giving us a quick intro, please?
3: Yeah, I'm Jillian Johnsrud. I I write over at Montana Money Adventures, and I kind of talk about financial independence, but really intentional living.
4: Hi, my name is Paula Pett. I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast, and I talk about self-improvement, personal development through the lens of financial independence.
6: My name is Carl. I blog over at 1500 Days, and I write about money on the surface, but deep down, it's about happiness.
2: Hi, this is Christy and Bryce, and we write at millennialrevolution.com. And we also have a book coming out from Penguin called Quit Like a Millionaire, out July 9th.
1: I'd like to start with you guys, Bryce and Christy, especially Christy, I want to go back to your childhood a little bit. Back when you were living in China before you moved to Canada, tell me what your conception of wealth was at that age. What was making it when you were still living in China?
2: Well, when I was living in China, I didn't really know what I was missing. So even though i I'd never used a toilet before and like taking a shower meant like using a bucket and all that stuff. I didn't actually realize that that was poverty, even though back then my family at one point was living on 44 cents a day until I actually came to Canada and knew what I was missing. So I would say back then wealth to me was just like basically having, if you had four walls and you had your family and you had food, that was wealth. That's it. That's basically all you needed. Yeah. Her dad used
7: to say that his, his dream was to want to be full one day. (laughs) Well, that that was literally his life goal Um, to to have a meal where he was full. So it's like a very different background from a lot of people that are in the fire space.
2: Yeah. So to give you a little bit of background, my dad lived through a famine when he was a child and he was at one point put into a labor camp for 10 years. So his conception of a good life was really to become full. So my life was actually a, a huge step up from his. So I guess for me, Wealth really became relative in that I saw that it could always be worse. And from my dad's, the mindset that he taught me, which in Chinese is called Chuku, which means like, literally eat bitterness. Because back then during the famine, they, they only had like bitter melon to eat. So he actually eats that on purpose, which I don't know why. I'm like, why are you eating this vegetable? It's the most disgusting, bitter, disgusting melon ever. And he says it re- reminds him of what suffering tastes like. So I think from that background, he gave me this really good perspective of what wealth is. And for everyone, it becomes relative.
1: So Jillian, let's talk a little bit about that relativity. Do you consider yourself having grown up in poverty?
3: I would say pretty much my entire childhood, we were below the poverty line for a family in the US at that time. But I think there's a financial poverty, but there's all these other things that poverty can bring in. And I think that's something that sometimes isn't added to the conversation. You know, there, there's this difference between being financially poor and being poor in all these other areas of life. You know, things like having domestic violence in a home or having abuse or mental illness, being in a dangerous neighborhood, you know, all of these other things add a different level of trauma to childhoods.
1: Paula, I'm interested in this idea of financially poor versus having poverty in other aspects of your life. You guys emigrated to the United States. At that time, my guess is you probably didn't financially have a lot, but would you have considered yourself being in poverty at that point? And were maybe the skill set of your mom and dad ameliorating that circumstance?
4: I would say that my parents grew up in poverty, my dad in particular, but when we came to the United States, I wouldn't describe that as poverty. I would just describe that as lower income because- there was always a roof over our head. There was always food on the table. And we didn't have like go out to a restaurant type of money. You know, we didn't have like nothing crazy like that. But we clipping coupons and going to grocery stores, we could still eat three meals a day. So yeah, relative to people who ...could go to a hair salon and get their hair cut by a stylist. We didn't have that kind of money. But until I went to high school, I never felt as though I was lacking. But to directly answer your question... What Jillian brought up, these issues of domestic violence, um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, issues that create trauma within a person's experience, they exist at all socioeconomic levels. And when they are compounded upon being lower income, then you take two very difficult situations and bring them together. And that makes the situation even tougher for those who are in it. You know, and so I think Jillian brings up a very good point in that in that when we talk about starting with disadvantages, I mean, there are lots of different disadvantages that various people start with. And finances are only one of many possible challenges that people have to overcome. Carl,
1: let's talk a little bit about your childhood. I've been reading your blog for a long time, and I've seen you reference the idea of being financially insecure during childhood, but I don't see a lot of details about it. Do you talk much in your writing or on podcasts about your upbringing and how money was involved?
6: I do a little bit now and then. At the core, my parents were and are good people, but there were some tough layers My dad suffered from alcoholism and also from mental disease. He was bipolar. So uh, the combination of those two made for some unpleasant moments. And on top of that, I don't want to say they weren't good with money, but they didn't have the knowledge like I think most people still are are today. So they didn't know how to manage money. So when my dad had a job, times were great, but they didn't save. They would spend. And then as soon as my dad would lose his job, which would happen every winter, we'd be in a little bit of a tough spot. And it put this deep financial insecurity in me. So that caused me to save. And uh, I don't know if I'd be the same person I am today without that. You could come out of a bad situation two different ways. You can learn from it or you can let it affect you and let it be an excuse. And I'm glad I don't think I'm some exceptional person, but I'm glad I didn't let it hold me back. It was unpleasant. The financial security was not good, but I have the money I I do today because of that. So
1: Christy, what I'm hearing as we talk or start this conversation is that there are financial decisions that either hurt or benefit us, but there's obviously life situation. Looking back at your childhood, could your parents have done any different When you were a kid, could you have not grown up with so little? Was it a choice they made or was it just their life circumstances?
2: I think part of it was also just growing up under a totalitarian government. Like it wasn't just about the finances, it was also about security because they lived in a circumstance in which just basically their upbringing, something that they had no control over, like my mother, her family was landlord and on my dad's side, his dad worked for the opposition party from the uh, communists. So as a result of that, they had horrible things happen to them that was completely outside of their control, just by birth. So I think as a result of that, they basically had a lot of opportunities taken away from them. And the only way they were able to come back from that was just because the uh, government there were so many people that died from famine and from you know working in labor camps that they decided to flip everything around and give people an opportunity out by bringing back the education system. So my mother actually still didn't get an education. My dad managed to um, be able to like pull himself out of poverty with education. So I think that's why a lot of their teaching to me was education is basically more important than your life. Because from my dad's perspective, that was the only thing he was able to use to save himself and not just himself, but my entire family. So I think coming from that background, knowing that anything bad can happen to you at any point that is completely no fault of your own, just by being born... (laughs) to the wrong like situation and background taught them that you always have to be vigilant and you always have to have that mindset like you always have to have a backup plan no matter what happens and if you just kind of dwell on your situation but don't try to get out of it then you're going to be stuck like that forever so it's kind of that mindset of like keep praying but rowing towards the shore so there's things that are completely outside your control and you definitely need help but don't just sit there and wait for help to happen because it may not
7: Adding on to Carl's point, where it's like financial decisions that you could make, they didn't make any financial decisions to get them into poverty. That was something that was a complete geopolitical event that they had no control over. And they would, quite frankly, have rather not gone through. But the way that they reacted to that was what kind of caused them to get to break out of that. And it can be very, very differently even between the individual. I mean, you know, I know your mom is very much a kind of like dwell on the past kind of person who will say, oh, I, you know. It's Chairman Mao's
2: fault. It's Chairman Mao's (laughs) fault. It's the communists'
7: fault. Everything bad has ever happened to me is because of Chairman Mao. And it's like, Chairman Mao's been dead for (laughs) many, many decades now. So it's just like, you know, but a dad on the other side kind of said, yeah, we're in this bad situation. So I need to work incredibly hard. What was the success rate of getting through so back then, during the revolution, everyone was pulled out of school and sent to the countryside. So this happened around high school, high school, yeah. high school air. So everyone stopped their education. After Chairman Mao died, they reinstated the government exams to admit people to university. Like everybody, despite having not having a high school education, was taking this exam at the same time. And like, what was the success rate on that thing? Oh, it was like less than 1%. Yeah, like less than 1% of people made it in. So he saw that opportunity and says, okay, I had to work incredibly, incredibly hard. And that's the only way of getting out of it. And he didn't blame anyone. He just kind of went, okay, this is a bad situation. So I'm going to work really, really hard to get out. And that's kind of what his attitude is like. But it varies even between between individuals inside the family.
1: So, Paul, let's talk about this a little bit. The difference between circumstance and mindset. I mean, are we really talking about mindset here?
4: I mean, there's the hand that you're dealt and then there's how you play it. Right. So you can't do anything about the hand that you're dealt, not just initially in life, but also anytime that you're living in a country where there's a war or an uprising or a natural disaster, like there are things that happen both based on your birth and throughout your life. Maybe there's an illness or a disability. That's the hand that you're dealt. And then your job is to make the best of that situation, controlling whatever it is you can control. Jillian, as I think about circumstance versus
1: mindset, I also think back to, I think it was the Bigger Pockets Money podcast when you were on, and you talked about your circumstances and being 11 or 12 years old and having a conversation with your mother about changing your lives. Tell me about her mindset versus your mindset at that point.
3: Yeah, I think that one of the most powerful mindsets that we can have is just the courage to hope that things can be different because without hope, all we have is despair and, you know, across income levels, across situations, it's so easy to be hopeless and it's so easy to give up all of our agency and to give up all of our choice and just to say we're stuck. There's one choice and it's a bad one and that's the only one we have. When I was 11, I held on to the hope that maybe things could be different. Maybe we don't have a lot of great choices, but maybe there's a different choice. And I think anytime that we give up that hope, that we give up the agency that there are other choices out there, well, just stay stuck. I mean, that's just the natural progression. You're going to be stuck in whatever situation it is. So, yeah, I just held really, really tight to hope and just the belief that things could be different. And all the way through grade school and high school, you know, the reality was I didn't have a lot of opportunities. There weren't a lot of great choices out there, but. I'll be damned. I was going to take the next best choice. There were choices and I was, I was just going to pick the best one out of the lot and compounds, you know, as you make good choices, more good choices tend to open up over time.
1: Was there a moment where you sat with your mother at 12 years old and said, hey, let's get out, let's change things, let's change this mindset, and how did she react?
3: She was and is a very pragmatic, reasonable woman, and she said, Jillian, there's absolutely no way I can support three kids on my own. Like, we don't have a choice. And there were little apartments above the grocery store, like little one-bedroom studios. And I think they were renting for like 150 bucks a month. And I was like, Mom, we'll do anything. I will do anything. Like, I will. I will work. I will mow lawns. Like, we will figure it out. We just have to get out of here. And she was like, it's not an option.
1: Carl, does what Jillian says resonate with you?
6: What was your parents' money mindset when you were growing up? I just don't think they knew anything about money, and I don't think it was a concern. My dad's alcoholism, and my uh, my mother was probably most concerned with my dad getting home from his tavern adventures safely. She would do go through this song and dance where she would pack all our clothes and put them on our kitchen table, and then when my dad would come home, my mom would be like, "Ah, hey." hey, William, we were just about to leave. I was just about to leave you and move back in with my mother because of your drinking. And of course, she was never actually going to do that. She was just trying to uh, change the behavior of my dad. But when it came to money, they just didn't have the knowledge when the money came in, it was spent. And when my dad was laid off, we would buckle up and they didn't really know anything about investing. And uh, I don't think they were especially bad, but they just weren't good either. They just didn't have the knowledge. They didn't know what to do with money or how to manage it. I think about it often, like if they would have made certain decisions when my dad was working, they would probably be millionaires now or multi-millionaires. Like a lot of people make small decisions early on and get it right and you'll be well off. But they didn't just because they didn't have the knowledge like a lot of us. They did not have the education.
1: Now, Did it click with you when you were a child? Did you see what they were doing and somewhere in the back of your head say, I'm not going to do it that way?
6: Oh, absolutely. On multiple levels. Number one was the alcoholism. I'm like, and I'm thankful and not all of it might be my dad's fault. Maybe he was born with bad genes. The same thing with the bipolar. So I'm very thankful that I don't suffer from either of those. But I remember telling myself, I told myself two things. Number one is I'm going to go to college. No one in my family had ever gone to school. And I saw that as a way out to make money and have financial security. And I also vowed to learn about money. So I as soon as I got my first paycheck, I learned about 401ks and learned what to do with money. As soon as I got money, I knew what to do with it. And the other thing was, I think I'm pretty fortunate because I was always a saver. My siblings weren't, but whenever I got money, I liked to save it. My siblings called me Mr. Cheapo because they would be like, hey, you've got $100. You should go buy the stereo. And I'd be like, you know, I kind of want it, but I'd just rather save it. So and then they joined in, in a chorus of Mr. Cheapo, Mr. Cheapo, Mr. Cheapo. So now here I am doing well, and they're uh, probably doing average. So. Christian Bryce,
1: as I listen to Carl, I think about the difference between the kind of scarcity mindset and the entitlement mindset. And it sounds like a lot of our panelists learned from the scarcity mindset to achieve, to save, to be frugal, to make money. But isn't the scarcity mindset a bad thing?
2: okay so one of the things that i kind of have a pet peeve about is whenever like business books talk about you know, don't have the scarcity mindset that holds you back like you need to have the abundance mindset and you know what from from a business point of view from an entrepreneurship point of view that's probably correct but what they fail to acknowledge is that anyone who had the scarcity mindset that's not something that is by choice it's something that happens to you and it's something that happens because you have limited resources i like to think of the scarcity mindset as having two sides there's two sides to every story and i think that for me personally Personally, if I did not have that, I would not be here today because I would never value money to the extent that I do. And I would never value education or financial education to the point that I do now. I had to go through some extremes to get there because one of my first lessons in the scarcity mindset was losing a key that cost us enough money to feed our family back home. And my mother hit me really hard for that. And that was like lesson that was like physically drilled into me. That was my first lesson in that money is valuable. And if you don't value it, your family members could die. Like that's something that it's not just for you, but it's something that could save other people as well. But on the other side, I have to say that scarcity mindset has its limits. One of the things that I struggled with the scarcity mindset was when I first learned how to invest. Because once you have the scarcity mindset, it's really hard to know how to grow your money because you just think of putting everything into a savings account because you think of every single penny as something that, that is precious. And then you never actually take any risks and that could absolutely hold you back, which is why in our book, I uh, talk about how part of the reason why we got here was also because I learned from the middle class and like rich people and from Bryce's like middle class background, I was able to learn that scarcity mindset could absolutely hold you back and turn you into a hoarder. (laughs) If you don't understand that money actually can make money and understand how to invest. So I think that scarcity mindset can be helpful, but it has its limitations.
7: It's actually quite interesting that we in the fire community, you know, people have this misconception that we're just a bunch of software engineers that fell into a bunch of money and it's it's all luck. And it just kind of of course you became FI. Uh, how could you not? You were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And what I'm actually hearing now is that a lot of the people that actually made it spent some time in economic uncertainty. And uh, the panelists here are a great example of that, because that was the fear, that insecurity that made people kind of want to go, I never want to, like, money is really important. I'm going to be very, very careful with it, because I never want to feel that kind of insecurity again. And ironically, that healthy fear of insecurity drove a lot of us into becoming financially independent, which of course means I never have to worry about money at all. Like, I have this theory that it's almost a requirement to spend some time in some form of poverty to get that fear inside you to be like to drive yourself towards financial independence. Because if you don't have that fear, you kind of go, Eh, everything's probably going to be fine. I'm just going to spend this money. Money comes, money goes. It's it's probably going to be fine. And for us uh, or for Christy, especially, and uh, the other panelists, it's just like, no, if you screw over your money, it's not going to be fine. And that's kind of what made all of us do what we did.
1: Paula, speak to that a little bit. I mean, is economic insecurity a necessary ingredient?
4: I mean, I don't want to be so prescriptive as to say that it's a necessary universal for everybody because everybody has their own story. But It is certainly a common thread that I have anecdotally heard among many people. I totally resonate with that comment. You know, I think that the work that it takes, especially the emotional work that it takes to live in ways that are unconventional which is what financial independence requires, you know, to save 50% of your income, even if you're earning just a a normal middle-class American income, right? To live with roommates when you don't quote unquote have to, or to drive a 15-year-old car when you have the money to be able to drive a five-year-old car or a two-year-old car, right? Like those types of things are decisions that a person makes when they're sufficiently motivated to make those decisions. And sometimes coming from a background in which you realize, like, this is not that big of a deal. And the benefit of having financial security far exceeds tiny, insignificant drawback of living with roommates or having an older car. I think that mindset forms when you have that perspective, that wider perspective.
1: So, Julian, I want to juxtapose a little of what Paula just said with some of the things that I've seen in your blog. You said in the past that poverty shapes people in different ways, and you talk a little bit about how sometimes the skeletons in your closet can actually sabotage you a little bit. Do you care to comment on that? So, scarcity is good. Going through hard times when you're younger, experiencing poverty helps, but it also leaves scars, right?
3: Yeah, I hate to use the word beneficial, but I think we all at some point need to realize that money gives us choices and it gives us options and it creates freedom. And if there's any benefit of poverty or going through difficult situations where you think, man, money could have made this a little bit better. You start to value having those options and value having those freedoms. But It definitely, while it it gave me that clarity of thought that money equals freedom, it also created a tremendous amount of shame. Shame of, we were so ashamed to be poor. My mother worked so hard to just make us not look poor. You know, she went through every thrift store. She went to every garage sale. She did her very best to make sure we were clean and presentable and like that we could fit in. But especially if you have, I think for a lot of people, if you have any, any trauma in your childhood, any chaotic environment that you don't really feel at home and you don't really feel safe in your family unit, where that's not like a safe, comfortable spot. I desperately wanted, once I got into school, I wanted to feel safe and I wanted to belong in a group. So it made it extra painful to have to stand outside of the group. And to have to feel like I didn't belong because I was making, like Paula said, these these choices where you're intentionally being different. And I didn't have that safe, comforting, warm family to like be that home base. And now I'm trying to be out in the world and feel so much shame about being poor And in grade school and high school, it can be so easy for other people to shame you for being poor when you don't fit in and when you don't have the resources that while it gave me the clarity that money equals freedom, it also was something I had to constantly push back against. Like I didn't believe I was going to make enough money to save and to look rich. So it was this choice like I either have the ability to look rich or I have the ability to grow actual wealth, but I'm not going to make enough to
1: do both. Carl, did you ever experience the same thing? You know, I think when people grow up without riches, there is sometimes this feeling of shame. Did you ever feel like you had to balance looking wealthy versus being wealthy?
6: That's an interesting question. So I I grew up in a town where half the town was kind of... uh, well off and the other half wasn't. We were in the part that wasn't well off. So you could see, and you went to school with the same kids. So you saw how the other half lived. And uh, it kind of hurt as a kid, I guess, because I wanted the fancy bikes and a lot of those kids got cars when they turned 16. And and my parents were like, yeah, if you want a car, you better go out and get a job. Looking back though, I'm thankful for that. Kind of what Christine Bryce talked about, the scarcity put a work ethic in me. And uh, I think the most important factor with success in life is, uh, well, let's back up a second. There's this quote I heard, from Warren Buffett and he was talking about his parents and he said I won the ovarian lottery and he went on to say my parents are still the work ethic in me they are good solid people so I think that's probably the main determiner of success with most people so people like Jillian impressed me most because uh she shouldn't be like where she is today she should be I don't know most people don't come out from Jillian's background and end up like her they uh repeat the same mistakes
1: You say something interesting. You say most people don't do what Jillian has, yet should we expect them to be able to? So if we look at the people on this panel, is there some survivorship bias? I mean, should everyone be able to go from poverty to financial independence?
6: I think they can, but it's difficult because no matter how much you might not want to admit this, our parents are the main influence on us, and they form who we are. I think much more so than we think they do. So, and I see it. I look at some of my childhood friends whose dad had alcohol problems too, and and most of them now like turned out the exact same. I'm like, how could you see the trauma that your father put you through and repeat that exact same mistake? Like, wow. So. I think it's difficult, I think, to expect anything from your question, like, can we expect people to grow out of their situation? I think anyone can, but it's definitely going to be more difficult if you didn't have that stable upbringing.
1: Christy and Bryce, I'm interested in this idea of an inflection point. Anyone who comes from meager upbringings and eventually accumulates wealth has had to have some type of inflection point where they say, I'm going to do it differently than my parents. What was it for you guys? And how does the general audience member get there? Like what causes and sparks this change?
2: I'm going to agree with Carl and I say that anyone can do it but it's going to be very very challenging. I think what helped me was not just, you know, what my parents were teaching me but the perspective of growing up in a different country. So, when I came to Canada and people were making fun of me for my thrift store clothing or my haircut which my parents did for me cuz they had to send money back home, it was hurtful, but because I had that perspective of growing up in another country, I was just like, buddy, like you think this is poor? It's so much worse. Like the government could seriously lock you up kill you and then send a bill for the bullets to your parents. <laughs> like there are things worse than death. There are things that are much, much worse. So I think for me personally, it was having that perspective. But if you don't have that perspective, it would be a lot more difficult because then you've been comparing yourself to other people and thinking that you're, you're inadequate, that you're never going to get there. But. I'm hoping that with examples like us, we will be able to inspire people that it is possible that you can go beyond your circumstances, even though it might be extremely challenging.
7: And to, and to speak back to that inflection point, not everyone gets there, right? I mean, we know people that grew up in a similar circumstance, came, immigrated into the West, and then when they had a little bit of money, they are like, woo! I'm going to spend all of the money. Like, I, I, like I've like i never seen so much money before. I'm going to spend it all on purses. I'm going to spend it all on, on this or that. And I'm going to spend it on, on cars. I'm not poor anymore. So I'm going to really enjoy this money. And I think for you, uh, it was actually your coworker.
2: Yeah, I think my inflection point. So my backstory is that we lived in a really expensive city and houses were unaffordable to the point where one day I saw my coworker work so many hours that he collapsed and almost died at his desk and had to be rushed to the hospital because his, his health he was neglecting his health in 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 order to live that, you know, American dream lifestyle. And so I think that, at that point I started to realize, okay, so we ran away from a totalitarian government and my dad survived famine and a labor camp to get here so that I could die at my desk. Like what was the point of all that when it just wraps back around? And what's really mind blowing is that my dad actually had a wake up call recently in that he um, attended a colleague's funeral and his colleague died at the age of 68. And it wasn't because of lack of money that he kept working beyond retirement age. It was because he had this identity that he had to prove that he was, you know, earning money and living this life. And my dad, for the first time in his life, he said, I'm glad that you retired. I'm glad you did this. And this is coming from a man that one time ran back into his office during an earthquake, because that's how strongly he believes in work. And he skipped my wedding to go to a meeting. Like From that kind of background, for someone to say, you know what? There is an inflection point at which you realize work is like this lifestyle of trying to compete with everyone else. It's not about that. What is the point of doing all that to come to the West and then die at your desk from overwork?
7: Yeah. In the in the book, we kind of realized when she was in poverty, she realized that money is worth bleeding for, right? Because it was it's that important. But at a certain point, we're just kind of like, well, it's worth bleeding for, but it's not worth dying for, right? And that, that's the inflection point where we kind of went, all right, money, it can't just be about money. It has to be about something bigger than money. And that's the inflection point where we kind of went, okay, what else can we buy with this money other than more stuff, And that's when we realized it was possible to buy freedom. And then the rest is kind of like history.
1: So, Paula, it's almost like there are two turning points to end up at financial independence if you start with very little, right? So the first turning point has to be when you decide I'm going to do something different than my parents so that I financially end up different from them. And then the second turning point is to say not only am I going to accumulate wealth, but I'm going to walk away from the workspace. Is that Mm. fair to say? I mean, do you need like these two separate turning points to get you to financial independence?
4: No, I wouldn't say that because, well, first of all, I don't think that everyone necessarily decides that they're going to do something different than their parents because lots of people have parents who, like myself included, my parents were very hardworking. They made a lot of very good decisions. They lived very frugally, but they started from a very different set of circumstances. My grandparents were illiterate. My paternal grandparents were illiterate. My mom and dad got married. My mom was 13. My dad was 14. So they were, you know, like they were the offspring of illiterate, tenant rice farmers who then got into child marriage. So they just started at a very different level. And so I never had the experience where I decided I was going to do something different than them. Like to the contrary, I saw their examples of hard work and frugality and imitated that. It's just that I had a childhood in the United States and I didn't have an arranged marriage at the age of 13. Like, it wasn't that I made a decision that was different. It was just that when you don't have child marriage, it kind of helped, you know? And then in terms of leaving the workforce, it goes back to that conversation about the difference between financial independence versus early retirement. Not everybody who aspires to financial independence necessarily wants to retire early or even necessarily leave the workforce. I think for a lot of people, the motivation is simply to build a safety net underneath you such that if you get laid off, or if you get fired, or if you decide that you just want to take a break for one or two years to take care of your kids or of an aging family member, you'll be okay. And so it might be the case that once you reach financial independence, you continue to work, but you continue to work with the confidence that comes from knowing that you don't have to.
5: And I struggle with this concept of if these outcomes are predictable, if anybody can truly build financial independence and have that safety net, because I'm currently reading a book by Nassim Taleb about uh, fooled by randomness, and it talks a lot about survivorship bias. I'm not all the way through the book, so I'm not sure I necessarily agree with everything he's claiming, but basically what he's saying is that we misunderstand the outcome, the probability, and that a lot of what we happens in our life is really just through random chance. And so with that being stated, I would like for really all of y'all to comment on that because I'm not sure... I, where I stand on this because I feel like I can tell somebody with reasonable certain degree of probability that if you do these things, you will get the certain outcome. But it's based on a lot of investing that has a lot of predictable outcomes to a certain degree. Are we just randomly working or, or is this something we can follow?
2: I would say that some of life is due to chance, but not everything. There's a lot of things that you do have control over. And I think the mindset that some people get is, it's very like depressing where it's like, well, you know, the fates are against me and there's nothing I can do about that. But what I've learned just from different perspectives and from what my parents have taught me and seeing other people in the fire community is that you do have control over a lot of things in your life. There's definitely going to be problems that you don't see coming. And with this investing, like, of course, there's going to be bear markets and we don't always talk about that. A lot of people just say, oh yeah, things are going great. Let's all jump into the market. But having lived through 2008, it is not fun going through a bear market and it will happen. But you have to be prepared for it as best as you can. Obviously, you can't prepare for every single thing that goes wrong in your life. But the point of living is not to live so risk adversely and basically live in a box and never get out of the house because bad things could always happen and never invest and never do anything because that's not really living. But to have backup plans and to live life, the life that you choose to live rather than in a life that somebody else has dictated to you.
7: I've noticed something actually talking to a lot of people who have done very, very well, as well as people who have done not so well, is that there is this tendency of people who end up accumulating a lot of wealth that they have this ability to take randomness and turn negative things into positive things. Like people will be like, yeah, I failed starting up this company, but then I just, that allowed me to learn and, and go to the next company or, or something like that. Or yeah, I grew up in poverty, but hey, that makes it so that like, for example, Chrissy, she, her mind is a steel trap for prices. Like she can remember off the top of her head, like how much is a pound of grapes and how much is a good price for like apples, I don't because I'm just kind of like whatever. So she was able to take that and turn it into a positive thing. While people who, for example, I know people who are just like chronically unemployed and they're always blaming everything. It's like oh this this bad thing happened to me many years ago, so I'm just going to let that crush me, and it's it's the universe's fault for having this bad thing happen to me. So it's like randomness is like a series of events that kind of happen to you, and yeah, you don't have control over that, but you do have control over how you respond to it, and. The really successful people have a way of converting randomness, random bad things into good things, and really unsuccessful people have this ability to convert random good things into bad things, you know?
1: So, Carl, I want to restate Paul's question very similarly and just say, is your pathway reproducible, the pathway you took?
6: Yeah, I think it is reproducible. The one thing I'll say is I think most of our lives are in our control, especially like the investing. Once you learn the fundamentals of investing, that part's in your control. I think a lot of what you do, we have a choice of what we study in college and what we do for work. So I think most of life is in our control. But thinking on this now, some of the most important things that set the course of my life were just random. And two of them were meeting my spouse. I mean, I'm sure some of you have the same thing. If I wouldn't have gone to a party one day, I wouldn't have met my spouse. My life would be completely different. I don't know how. But another one is I had a bad day at work and I Googled how do I retire early back in October 2012. And now I'm sitting here right now talking to you vastly underemployed because of that one Google search where I found Mr. Money Mustache and J.D. Roth. So I think it definitely is reproducible, but some of the most interesting things that happen in life are random. Bryce said about how you perceive life. I read this interesting quote and I wrote it down. The event doesn't make us unhappy. It's the way we perceive it does. So I've learned a big thing to my happiness is controlling my reaction to when bad things happen. For example, if someone cuts you off in traffic, you can curse and yell at the guy, or you could shut down your lizard brain and consider that maybe that guy's having a bad day, or maybe he's on his way to work, or maybe his daughter's in the hospital. So the, the way that we perceive what happens to us is so important. And and critical to our happiness and how our life turns out.
1: Jillian, was your pathway reproducible, or is your pathway reproducible?
3: I'm torn. I think there's two sides of that spectrum because there were a lot of advantages that I had, despite all of the difficulties. Like there were some really good things. One of the biggest things, and this may sound silly, but like if I'm lying, I'm dying. It was Oprah. Every day after school, I came home and I ate a Pop-Tart and I sat in front of the TV and I watched my Auntie Oprah for an hour every single day of my entire childhood. I mean, Oprah was a lot of things for a lot of people, but for me, she taught me hope. That no matter what had happened or what you had gone through or what circumstance, there was a possibility of life to be different and to be better. And I just ate that every day for an hour for like a decade. And it gave me this hope of possibility, like maybe things could be different. She's not doing that TV show anymore. Like not everyone might have that. And so I think that if we have hope We know that there are multiple choices and we can try to make the next best one. But my husband and I, we've adopted four kids from foster care. So we've been part of the foster care system for 15 years and working with all of the birth parents, man, it's going to be a tough road. I mean, they're not everyone. When we talk about privilege, I think if we think about it like a race, Some people have a head start, which is great. Some people can just run faster and that will serve them well their whole life. And by contrast, some people will just run slower. There's things like mental illness that are going to be really tough to overcome. There's things like extreme trauma that they've been through. It's going to be really tough. A low IQ, it's going to be really tough. So I think that... They can make the next right choice, but there's not a lot of fantastic choices available. Will they become financially independent at 30? No. Could their life be a little bit better? Could they have a little bit more margin financially? Yeah. Yeah. I think with a decade, two decades, for some people, honestly, it might be they're doing this for the next generation, you know, kind of like in Paula's family's case, like they started in a really rough spot and they just have to make lots and lots and lots of good choices. So the next generation has the very best chance.
1: So Paula, I'd like to end this by doing something horrible. I'm going to quote you to Uh yourself. Okay. Uh This is a quote from a few years back on your blog. You said, society teaches us that more equals better. But the truth is that after a tipping point, more equals clutter, distraction, and noise. And then you quoted your money or your life. You said, some people would say that once we're above the survival level, the difference between prosperity and poverty lies simply in our degree of gratitude. Tell me about your thoughts about that now. It's been a few
4: years since you wrote that. I would still agree with that. When you think about the correlation between money and happiness or spending and happiness... The basic level at which there's that strong correlation to the degree that money can purchase four walls and a roof over your head and an environment that doesn't have cockroaches or rats to the degree to which it can, as Bryce was saying earlier, like give you enough food that you eat so much that you feel full at the end of that meal, you know, and it can give you clean drinking water. There's a huge, huge importance to money and a lot of happiness that can come from spending that money on food and shelter. But once you pass that tipping point, then it's clutter. Then you open your closet and you see 15 different shirts and then you still say that you have nothing to wear, right? And once you get to that point, then at that point, it just becomes a more efficient use of your money to invest it because spending it is not going to really increase your happiness in any meaningful way. So Bryce and Christy, after having
1: this conversation, let me interpret a little bit of Paula's quote. It seems to me that after you get to basic survival, which is not only monetary, but mental health, living in a place where politically you can do what you need to do, once you get to a certain level of safety, the rest is about mindset. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I would say that. Like one of the things that I, I realized is that like having the perspective of seeing things in different countries and how things could be better. I feel very, very grateful that we were able to immigrate to the West. And when I read statistics saying that if you earn like thirty-two or $34,000 a year, you're 1% of the world. And if you live in the West, you're kind of already won the lottery. And I would agree with that. There are so many opportunities that kind of gets taken for granted that you don't really see unless you actually go to another country and see how things could be so much worse. There's always things that could be better, but there's always things that we should be grateful for as well. And I think having perspective allows you to be grateful for the opportunities and for the services that you have.
5: Okay. I'd like to bring this conversation back to the ultimate question and I'm going to qualify a little bit. The original question was, can anyone become financially independent? And so I think there are some obvious distinctions that if you're born in some of the extreme conditions you're talking about, that that may not be plausible unless you get out of that situation. So let's put somebody that you get to help that is willing, cooperative, and they live in the West, North America or Canada or the U S, an industrialized country, and they have the ability to get a basic job and earn income can they become financially independent? Could you help them? What would you tell them to do? Each one of you answer that question. Paula, can anyone with that qualification become financially independent?
4: Assuming they're healthy. Mm -hmm. And when I say healthy, I mean, not just in terms of physical health, but also mental health, emotional health. That's a foundational piece. And if that health isn't there, then that needs to be worked on first and foremost, because that can really hold you back. But assuming that you're healthy able-bodied and have permanent residency status or citizenship status in the United States, or I would assume Canada, then yes. Then I think that you can become financially independent, but for different people, depending on where you're starting, it will take different amounts of time, but you can do it in the course of your lifetime. And then so to the question of where do you start, it goes back to growing the gap between what you earn and what you spend. So in terms of the spending side of the equation, housing, transportation and food are the three biggest expenses for most people in the United States. So we cut back on those three to the greatest extent possible. And then in terms of what you earn, if you cannot earn more at your day job, you either transition careers such that you can earn more at your day job or start a side hustle such that you earn more Outside of your day job or both, you know, and by doing those two things, you grow the gap between what you earn and what you spend. You invest that gap and you have to be healthy in order to do that. And you have to be a permanent resident or a citizen in order to be able to have the security to know that you can stay in this country.
5: Jillian, the same qualifications that I said, and then add Paula's on there. Could you take someone under your wing? And I think you actually helped. This is part of your business, right? Can you do this? And is it not just randomness? Is it actually specific outcomes that you can? reliably predict the outcome of your student.
3: Yes, I would add one more qualification and that is belief that it's possible. You have to have a little bit of that hope. I don't know if any of us are miracle enough workers to drag the hopeless along with us, but I would push back on even this financial independence is the one and only goal. Because having grown up in in poverty and that difficult situation, I remember to the second when we had $10,000 in the bank and I had like a little celebration dance in the bank. It was so freaking life-changing to have $10,000. I couldn't even emotionally wrap my mind around it. It was so life-changing. When we had our first $100,000, that was insane. Even now, it's like, 10, five years worth of income in an investment. Like when we saved 50% of our income, God, that will change your life to be able to have that kind of margin. So there's no way you could have sold me at 19 that I would be financially independent. I would have called BS. It's not going to happen. It's not in the cards for me. Oprah got me to like, things can be better, but she did not sell me financial independence at 32. But believing that things could be better and hitting those first ones. And that's how you believe that things could be maybe even better. Like it gives you that audacity and that courage to hope. So I think that things can be better. And for you, that might be $1,000. It might be $10,000. It might be saving half your income. And maybe that's all you need. Maybe that's enough to take you from like, life is kind of hard to life is freaking incredible. And I'm going to count that as a win, even if you never technically reach financial independence.
5: Yeah, I really like that. Breaking it down into smaller steps where financial independence being kind of the ultimate top of the mountain, but there's always just financial security, right? RB, your net worth is zero because you've paid off any sort of debt. Building on those baby steps. I really like that point. All right, Bryce and Christy, same question to you guys. I think I've qualified it enough now. Adding Jillian's additional qualification that you have somebody who believes that you've sold them on it. Would you add anything else to qualifications and can you help somebody?
2: I think that something that would help is being surrounded by other people who can do it, like surrounded by positive people who kind of lift you up rather than people who are like, oh, you can't do it. What's the point? I think... I've talked to other people within the fire community before, where they've actually had to leave communities because the mindset there was really like, like, not only like, are you think you're better than us and trying to get an education. If you try to get an education, we are going to pull you down. So in that situation, I've seen people actually having to leave their communities in order to like better themselves. And even like myself personally, I've had to like get away from some like friendships in which it's like toxic and it's not helpful. So I agree with what Paula and uh, Jillian said, and I would say that like. surrounded by positive people who lift you up. And even if you have to make the sacrifice of leaving that community in order to be surrounding yourself with positive people is a huge win in terms of helping you maybe not completely become financially independent, just being like more secure with your finances.
7: Yeah, and to add to that, you know, uh, Jillian and Carl and us just came back from Chautauqua. and I remember the, something that Carl said at his talk, which is financial independence isn't like a goal that you need to like drive towards because this is like I need to become fire, I need to become fire. Financial independence kind of happens naturally if you get all your money ducks in order. Yeah, it's like I don't need to teach somebody how to become financially dependent. I just need to teach them how to figure out money. And like I like to say that if you figure out money, life is incredibly easy. If you don't figure out money, life is incredibly hard. So I think the gap for people with all those qualifications that they have to be able-bodied, sound mind, sound body, and able to work and willing to do this, that the big gap is they don't know how. Can we fix that? I'm going to try. That's kind of what we're all doing, aren't we?
5: Yeah, the conclusion I've come to is the how is not the hard part whatsoever. It's really pretty basic equations. You got to get this mindset thing, right? Surround yourself with people. I like that addition, the community, because that's huge. All right, Carl, ask you the same question. Do you got anything to add to all those uh, points that have been made?
0: Yeah.
6: So I had a family member tell me recently, like they found out about my story. So I was anonymous for a long time, but then they found out. They're like, wow, this is really incredible. Like This is really exceptional. And I don't like when people view it like that because I don't think I did anything exceptional. What I like to tell people is, I'm just living like my grandparents did in a modern age. So we're wealthier than ever now. We have bigger houses. We have better cars. Despite what the news says, we're safer than ever. So the world is so good. Like for example, it drives me nuts when people call a starter home. Why can't your starter home be your forever home? And I've seen both sides of this. So I lived in a 5,000 square foot home. We each had our own toilet. Like every member of our family had our own bathroom. And and we were going to add on to it. We were going to finish the basement. So there would have been a bonus toilet. And it was quite ridiculous. Now I live in a house about a, th- a third that size. And I'm happier because I like my community. So yeah, live like your grandparents did, but live with that wealth differential invested and yeah, financial independence will come even if you don't wish for it.
5: I think that's an important comment there to say is we teach somewhat about asset accumulation and investing, but there's at a certain point where enough's enough and knowing what your enough number is, all right, Carl, we'll send it right back to you. Uh, let us know how we can get a hold of you if the audience wants to know more about you and let us know what's up next for you. What's brewing in your life?
6: Ah, uh, you can find me on 1500days.com and uh, this weekend I'm looking forward to seeing Paul at Camp FI in Colorado and uh, thank you for having me. All
5: right, Paula, we'll send it back to you. Where can we find you and what's brewing in your life? What's up next?
4: Well, I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast, and you can download that podcast anywhere where podcasts are found. And in terms of what's up next, I've got, well, a bunch of really cool interviews lined up on the podcast, which I'm excited to roll out. And then I myself am taking a five-week-long sabbatical, I call it the September sabbatical, where I will be traveling to Croatia, Slovenia, then going to FinCon, and then going to Japan for two weeks. So, I will be sharing those stories on Instagram and, you know, just uh, long term slow travel, enjoying the uh, ability to explore the world and, and sharing all of that on Instagram as well. So, you follow along, affordanything.com or the Afford Anything Podcast.
5: Okay, Jillian, how about back to you? Uh, where can we find you? And what's up next for you?
3: So you can find me kind of at Montana Money Adventures. I actually almost never write on the blog. I'm more of an emailer. So all of my content goes out in emails every week. So yeah, I'm officially an emailer. And what's up next? I have a lot of fun things planned this summer. We actually bought a camping spot. So we will be camping and experimenting with airbnb our house. But I'm hosting an event. I'm hosting my second event in October and kind of building out to online communities. So I'm spending a lot of fun time doing interviews there and hanging out with my
5: peeps. Where can we find out about your event in October?
3: All of my content, all of the things I do. I'm just an emailer.
5: Yeah, I'm on your email. This is very good. And to get on that, you can go to your blog and subscribe, right?
3: Yes. Okay. Yeah. The blog is helpful for that, if nothing else.
5: All right. Bryce and Christy, how about you guys? What's up next for you and what's brewing?
3: Yes, yeah, so you can find
2: us at www.millennial-revolution.com. And what's up next for us, we are going to New York in about a week to promote our book, Quit Like a Millionaire, out from Penguin. And uh, we're going to be meeting up with a bunch of friends and Chautauquans in New York. And then we are spending the summer with our family before flying out to Portugal for the Chautauqua. So yeah, it's going to be a blast. Fire people all the time. It's awesome.
1: And the book drops, what, July 7th? July 9th. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Paula Pant, Jillian Johnsrud, Carl Jensen, and Bryson Christie. That's a wrap.
6: Exactly.
2: Yeah, so masterful with your questions and humble too. Yeah, yeah,
4: <laughs> the most
2: humble. Yeah, you guys.
4: The humblest. <laughs> Number one at humble. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm gonna put
1: I'm gonna put that on my blog. <laughs> <That's> the humblest,
7: <laughs> the best and most humble blog ever. Yes, yes. Talking
1: <laughs> about <a> podcast.
2: <laughs> I said there's there's so many gotchas in this episode,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I expect. <laughs> ha
2: ha! I can see your underwear. Haha. Ha.
1: So anyway, I
2: am wearing pants by the way. So. <laughs> just just so that everyone knows.
1: I didn't doubt it, but now I do. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: if I have to say that, then, you know. Something that gives us the clarity. That, <laughs>
7: uh, that sounded really cool to what you were saying. I know. You, you realize yeah. you're going to have to start again.
3: As soon as I get back, it's going to be awesome.
1: Yeah.
7: <laughs> okay, I'll take a break. I'm going to refill our water. Okay, okay. Yeah, go for
1: right. it. Here's your chance to say something funny for the blooper. <laughs> Now's your chance am, to say something embarrassing. I am not, I am not wearing pants. <laughs> I'm
2: not saying I'm not wearing pants. You
5: you know, knew this, this I knew it. I knew it. happened last time when Jillian was on. She had I a, am
4: wearing a skirt. I am not uh, wearing pants, but I'm wearing a skirt. I'm I'm wearing a jumpsuit, like a one piece jumpsuit. Does that count? <laughs> I think that counts. Okay.
6: Oh, you'll be there. The, the Bitcoin guy. I, I met you, Paul, at camp, and you told us about Bitcoin, so I, I called you the Bitcoin guy. I don't know. It was a Paul. Yeah, the only
5: person that calls me that is you. But yeah, I do have okay. one. <laughs> point.
6: Yeah. I, I apologize. I apologize for that.
3: I don't know what is up next. Sorry. Are, are
5: you not taking any trips anywhere this year?
3: Okay, let me think. Let me think. <laughs> what I'm gonna say. She's
5: I'm taking so many trips she can't separate
3: all, them. all the damn time. <laughs> <laughs>